Hey everyone, and welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven, that is my amazing book-loving wife, Liberty. We're a married couple with different hobbies, and we like to bring each other into our interest by discussing the latest news in both books and sports. And today is the book episode. The better of the episodes. Yeah, that's a matter of opinion. Well, that's mine. Okay. This is our first episode back from our mid-season break. Our first book episode back, yes. Well, yeah. We'll just pretend like the sports episode didn't happen. The big news in the book community right now is that HBO is celebrating the Game of Thrones 10-year anniversary with a month-long event called the Iron Anniversary. Game of Thrones first premiered on April 17th, 2011. For the Iron Anniversary, HBO is featuring a variety of features and events for the fans of the series. There will be a spotlight page on HBO Max during the month of April that will include episode curations and 150 behind-the-scenes videos, cast interviews, trailers, and clips. And I'm going to speak on behalf of Game of Thrones fans. We just want a better ending. Yeah. Well, this is what you get instead. Yeah. On April 10th, HBO began airing all the episodes of Game of Thrones for an event that challenges fans to marathon the entire series in order to raise money for global charities such as Women for Women International, UNICEF, World Central Kitchen, and The Trevor Project. Interesting. Game of Thrones cast members will also rally the fans as they participate in the marathon for two weeks. So I guess they'll have like interviews or Zoom calls or whatever. And you said that starts on the 12th? It started technically yesterday as of our recording. So HBO is marathoning the show for like two weeks straight. Gotcha. During the Iron Anniversary, HBO will also gift couples who had Westeros-themed weddings with special presents. Gifts include Game of Thrones branded wine, custom chalices, and intricate cakes designed to represent the houses from the show. That sounds kind of ridiculous. Well, it's ridiculous to have a Game of Thrones wedding, so they're just going with it. Clearly. I just don't understand. Yeah. I had a wedding-themed wedding. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I've been to some weird weddings and some themed ones, but never one that's like, Game of Thrones. Well, I mean, especially during the beginning, people loved that show so much that... I could see it happening. Like, I've seen Harry Potter-themed weddings. I've seen Lord of the Rings-themed weddings, but it was a choice. So they're being rewarded for those choices. I don't get it. I just can't believe that Game of Thrones came out 10 years ago. That feels fake. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I was still in college when Game of Thrones started. Right. And, And now I'm a very old lady at almost 32. So old. But speaking of Game of Thrones, the actor who played Jamie Lannister on the show, whose name I'm about to mess up, Nikolaj Koster-Waldau. Yeah, you nailed it. Did I? <laughs> no. Oh, good. He is set to star in and executive produce a TV miniseries adaptation of Christina Clancy's novel, The Second Home. The project has been optioned and the actor is officially on board if and when the series moves forward. So they still don't know for sure that it's going to be a thing, but he's signed on to it. This is the author's debut novel published by St. Martin's Press in June of 2020. The book is about three siblings and the complicated history they share tied to a fateful summer at their family's second home in Cape Cod. So it sounds like rich people drama, maybe murdery. That's the best kind of rich people drama. Not the worst, obviously. The project is currently in the works at Sony's TriStar Television, 
and this would be the first TV role since the 2019 end of Game of Thrones for this actor. Also, while we were gone, a professional comic book artist and his autistic son have put together a comic book series called Jake Jet Pulse, and it's supposed to have autistic representation, but really, this kid wanted to be in a comic book, and his dad, who works in comic books, made it happen. That's pretty cool. So, Led Bradshaw's son, Jake, was three years old when he was diagnosed Later on, art therapy for Jake led to inspiration for his dad. Apparently, Jake was struggling with memorizing sight words for school. Oh, okay. And so his father started creating flashcards with his son as a comic book character, doing whatever the actions were, like, I don't know, jumping, whatever. I feel like this is kind of similar, and maybe not related to the autistic spectrum, as the dude that was doing, like, the edits with his kid, like, hanging off the cliffs or, like, the skyscrapers and stuff like that, the CGI guy. Very different. But, like, artistically, though. Right, yeah. yeah. Artistically, it is. Uh, It's a little bit different for him because he's helping his son deal with a learning disability and so on. But according to the father, Jake is involved in almost every part of the comic book creation, including creating characters and developing their backstories. Jake said in an interview, if you're diagnosed with autism, that's not bad. It's okay. You're still unique and you can do anything. It's true. And then when he was asked if he has a favorite comic book character, he said, yes, and that's me. (laughs) And I'm like, you do you, kid. That's pretty great. Narcissus has nothing on you. Yeah. But I just thought that was a really cute and cool story. Apparently it does include autistic representation in the comics but of course I can't speak to that because I'm not autistic but it's good to see that especially in a different form than just like really heavy books about how to live as an autistic person and like that being the main theme of the work right because this is like what we saw several years ago in the book industry because like every book about gay people was about the fact that they're gay like it didn't show them like living a real life and being who they are and going through their day to day. It's about coming out as a gay person. Right. And I feel like this is like the autistic version of that, just being able to expand on that. And the one piece of book news that I don't want to discuss, but I shall discuss, is that Mike Pence has signed a multi-million dollar two book deal with Simon & Schuster because apparently some people have dollar signs instead of souls. Just because it's a book that's being made that you're not interested in doesn't mean that there aren't other people that are interested in it. But yeah, I understand your frustration. Well, the news comes as the publishing industry grapples with the questions about how to handle would-be authors from the Trump administration. The big concern for publishers and for people who would be possibly reading these is whether the writers would actually be telling the truth. Yeah, Like, that's the big question mark with a... Trump White House book. So here's the thing. I feel like Pence put up with a lot of the crap Trump did. I don't think he actually agreed with it because he's he's a pretty conservative conservative, which means a lot of the things that Trump did were not his favorites. Even when he would have disagreed with Trump, it doesn't look to me from the outside that he did anything about that. And it's like that John Mulaney bit about his dad saying he's as bad as a Nazi because he just stood there and let stuff happen on the playground. Right. Like, it's the same thing. The playground is just the White House. I think you missed the point of that joke, which was that's not the same thing, but yeah. John Mulaney's dad and I would get along. (laughs) (laughs) But that has nothing to do with Mike Pence. No. 
A book from Trump would likely be an instant bestseller, according to publishers that were interviewed for this article. But publishers anticipate he'll expect an exorbitant advance and that the process of putting it together could be too difficult to make it worth the effort and the money. One person at a major publishing house who remained anonymous for this article said, it's not that the book wouldn't sell, it's that he's impossible to fact check or do business with. And like, that's a pretty good one sentence like note about who Trump is as a person. Right. One prominent literary agent said that the appeal is the ability to get inside the room. So like all these shocking things were coming out all the time. And so like people who like Trump and even people who don't like Trump want to know what was happening in the room as these stupid decisions were being made. Right. And so I can see why someone would want a Mike Pence book. I am not one of those people. Right. And we've had so many books coming out from the Trump administration that it's like, sure, why not another one? Just all the Trump books. The thing is, a lot of the books that came out were people going like, he's good, but he did a lot of mistakes. Like, people were pretty much dumping on him, which I understand. Here's the thing. This is a problem with the people creating books following leaving the Trump administration is you were just sitting there and allowing these things to happen. And then when you got fired or when you lost your job or when you left, you are trying to profit from having been in the room. And it's just like, it feels slimy. Yeah. Like it feels gross. But like we've said a couple times on the podcast, I am so far left that a moderate would need like a telescope to find me. So... Whereas I've always been kind of in the middle with a slight right lean. I'm not by any means a Trump supporter at all, by any means. If you were, I think we would have gotten a divorce. (laughs) Possibly. But at the same time, I'm just like, I know that Pence is the extreme right guy. I just don't think he's Tea Party crazy right either, so... I just don't know that I need to hear his story, especially not a two-book deal. Like, you got so much to say, you need two books? Well, depending on what he's going to talk about. Like, he he might do, like, an early life book and then the Trump era stuff. And that I could see two books, you know. I mean, I could understand that. I definitely think that the Trump era book would have to come out first for him to gain any traction at all. Oh, 110%. But besides that, we just have some adaptations and stuff that are, like, picking up actors and, like, nothing's happening. You're just on the path moving forward. And I didn't think that was really noteworthy. Of course, later this month, we have Shadow and Bone coming out, which I'm super excited for. And I've taken the day off so that I can watch it and do nothing else that day. I'm really sad that you're going to watch it without me. But I thought we said that you need to read the whole series before watching the show. Don't know that that's going to happen. So I'm going to watch it without you. Oh, got it. Yeah. But I thought for our first tag slash Q&A section coming back, it would just be a normal Q&A because it's been a while since you and I have really discussed books. Yeah. So the first question I came up with is, who is your favorite droid from the entire Star Wars universe? You can pick any of them. Um... It's going to be between like KTSO just because, or K2SO. I knew what I meant to say. K2SO is my answer. So the fact that you messed that up made me angry. (laughs) (laughs) Or I do like the OG C3PO. Like I feel like there was, it was like smart snarky, you know, it wasn't sassy like your favorite, but it was, it was just enough to be smart 
and like take digs at people. So that well, would be my pick. Here's my thing. I like AI or droids or, you know, bots, whatever you want to call them. I like when they have the ability to like have feelings and emotions about things happening and show a certain level of like humanity. And I feel like you definitely get that with K2SO. Like they are just not here for it. Yeah. Like, no matter what's happening, like, Captain said I had to, blah, 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 and all this other stuff. And I'm just like, yes, yes. K2SO is my favorite. Obviously, yeah. But what is your favorite Disney movie? Whew, that's a tough one. I, like, I... pulled up an entire list of Disney movies, and I was like, <laughs> I like this, I like this, and I like this, but, like, there's something completely different about Disney movies that you watched when you were really little. So I had to pick Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin. Those were both like Well, here's top the thing. You didn't me. like narrow it down to like Pixar or like no. anything. So I am going to go and because this was made by Disney, the original Mighty Ducks. Okay. Good I, movie. I don't know that I agree with you, but I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. I wanted to rewatch the original Mighty Ducks movies, but I'm like, what if I don't like it as much as I did when I was little? You will, and <laughs> that's the thing. Like well, that's the, why I think it's better than a lot of the other Disney movies. Where I'd be like, "Yeah, I saw The Lion King when I was young." I'm not gonna be like, "Oh my God, it's The Lion King again!" I just well, no, I won't. In my opinion, Lion King is not a top tier Disney movie. That's don't ridiculous. come at me. Don't at me. There, there's your hot take of the week. It is. Yeah. But my problem being that if I watch The Mighty Ducks now, now that I am a huge fan of hockey, whereas I wasn't the first time. I could see myself going, that's not right. Why'd you call a penalty on that? What's going on? Why would the coach tell you to do this? So I don't know that I could watch it. I would tell you exactly what I tell people that go to watch movies that are being remade. Leave it at the door. Right. Some people can do that. I can't. Right. Now, a question I don't know that you'll have an answer to, but I have one. What is your favorite Taylor Swift song? Only because my name is in it. Hey, Steven. Hey, Steven. Yeah. Mine is no body, no crime, because it is a sign that Taylor Swift is a murderino. Like, she's like me. She likes true crime. You can tell based on no body, no crime, and I love it. I am living for it. Yeah. Who was your favorite person from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Any of the Whose Lines, even the current one. I'm going to double check the name, but I'm pretty certain I know who I like. My favorite is Colin. He has a really good comedic timing, and also I saw him live. I was going to say Captain Hare, who is Colin. Yeah. Um, But since you've taken that away from me. You can pick him. He's the best. I would say it's between him and then Wayne Brady. I feel like Wayne Wayne Brady is phenomenal in those as well. Just because he does all the different voices and things really easily, whereas like Colin was pretty much Colin. Right. Yeah. I like his sense of humor a lot, and I feel like he has good timing. Oh, comedic timing. Phenomenal. Yeah. Out of the three activities, which one would you prefer to do on any given day? Go to the aquarium, go to the zoo, or go fishing? So I was like a kid, I probably would have said go fishing. Whether it be the card game or actual fishing. Um, Funny boy. Yeah, where's the laughter track? We can click that right now. Right. Or the wah, 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 wah. Or the cricket sounds. Yeah. (laughs) But I would probably say the aquarium. I've always really liked the sea. Yeah. I am afraid of the beach, which is the greatest irony of it now. But, like, when I went to sixth grade camp, I got to snorkel with, like, sharks and fish and, like, go over technically the continental shelf and just see the 
bottom the of nothing. That is the, the actual drop-off. ocean. Yeah, yes. it's a trip. So, but I've always had a fascination with like fish and stuff like that because I feel like it really is the final frontier. Like we we're exploring space, but there's areas of the ocean we've never even been as humans. Right, and so because the ocean is horrifying. But my answer was the zoo, and I don't know if the reason for this is that we just hand-fed giraffes this past week, and, like, that was on my mind. (laughs) It's top of mind. But I picked the zoo. I don't blame you for that. And we realized during the time we went to feed giraffes last week that I have fed giraffes three times. Well, I fed giraffes four times in three locations in my life. Yep. I feel like I need to get up there with, like, pandas. And uh, foxes and tigers. I was going to say, with pandas, good luck getting the Chinese government to be on board. Yes, they control all those decisions. What about koalas? I'm sure there's an option somewhere, like in Australia or something. That would be great. What is your favorite way to fall asleep? And I will tell you mine first, because I know we're different. I said I have to fall asleep watching what we call murder shows, because I can't fall asleep without something on the TV, and I have to have my heating blanket on. Even if it's summer. Thank God you don't all the time during the summer because I would kill you if you had the heating blanket on. Usually it's on like a level one, level two. For me, honestly, you've seen me fall asleep anywhere. I don't think I I have a particular way of falling asleep. But your absolute favorite way to fall asleep? Honestly, while you were up in Oklahoma recently, I... Without your wife. Yeah. The answer is without your wife. Not without my wife. But I realized that like, because it was opening week for baseball and my team was on the West Coast, there were a lot of really late games, so I fell asleep really easily watching baseball. Yeah, like, I also fall asleep easily watching baseball, so. <laughs> it's for different reasons. <laughs> yes, because yeah. it's boring. It's relaxing for me. Boring. So. And, uh, you know, Jason Benetti, if you're out there, your voice just puts somebody comfortably into a deep sleep. Is he the one that looks like his voice doesn't fit him? Yes. Okay, so, like, he's got a real deep voice, but he looks kind of like you. But that's because he has an actual disability. It's not because his voice is just weird. He, I believe, is actually on the spectrum, so... Well, I don't think that has to do with having a deep voice when you're a tall, skinny guy. Yeah, like, you wouldn't expect it to come from him. Right. I'm jealous. I wish I had a Jason Benetti announcing voice, because if I, I did... I do, too. I would make you read stories to me every <laughs> night when I go to sleep. That would be so nice. So we definitely have to tag Jason Benetti in the book episode, which makes no sense. <laughs> and just be like, listen, we need you to record children's book stories. No, I want him to read, like, Throne of Glass to me. Yeah. So, which of these would you or could you eat at any time of the year? And I'm going to list three different things. Candy canes, candy corn, or those weird styrofoamy peanut things. Let's be honest, nobody eats the styrofoam peanuts. Incorrect. My brother loved those. He's a monster. I know, it's gross. But if I had to take a pick, honestly, it would it would come down to candy canes and candy corn, obviously. Yeah. But I am a candy corn guy, and I know it freaks people out. Like, a lot of... Like, I brought him in last year to work. You mean not last year, the year before? Yes, because COVID, COVID was not a thing. A thing. Yeah. Yes. I was not bringing in bags of hand candy. No. <laughs> no. But it was really funny because, like, I found out that, like, half my employees hated it and half of them loved it. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I did not know there was such a spectrum of, like, yes or no on it's, candy corn. I thought everybody loved candy pretty corn. pretty much an even division for most people. Like, either you love it or you hate it. Yeah. And, like, we... 
we had a couple employees that are from third world countries that are not from the U.S. that have immigrated here, mm-hmm. and they've never had it. And I was like, this is the most unbiased we can get, right? Right, right. And make me a bad person for that maybe a little bit. But they all hated candy corn. So Good. it's probably... It's because it's just like... Sugar. Sugar. It's straight sugar. Yeah, and so like overly sweet. People who are not Americans most of the time don't like our sweets because they're too sweet. Yeah. So like I completely understand that. I'm on board with that as a dark chocolate person. Which has less sugar. Dark chocolate just means you don't have a soul. Yeah. But my answer to this question is candy canes. Well, yeah, because Miss Christmas, go figure. Miss Christmas? Yeah. That sounds nice. But I especially love candy canes in my hot chocolate, even if it's not Christmas season, because in my heart, it's always Christmas season. Right. The next question is, what is your favorite role that Heath Ledger has done? Because I saw a gif of him the other day when I was writing questions. So this is a tough one. I really liked him in both of his like final roles. He was obviously the Joker and some of the best Batman movies ever made. And I think that definitely would be one of the top ones. And then is it Majorium's Emporium or something like that that he did like right. the final movie that he was in? He didn't finish the movie, so they made it they made the role so that he did like a third of the movie and then another actor did another third and another actor did another third for that one character. And because of how weird that movie is, having watched it, it actually kind of works. Yeah. And so... It, it's an acid trip movie for sure. Like, <laughs> And I think the combination of like the Joker role and then doing that role just was like full tilt over the edge. Like that, that right. that's probably what made him off himself, which... Because, like, you're going to an absolute level of lunacy, and people on set were like, he took this role so seriously right? that we're not shocked, I, you know? I don't know that I want to fully go and blame the roles he was taking at that time for what happened. I think he had some underlying issues as well that were untreated, and that was part of the problem. And the combination of both were probably just... Too much. Yeah. yeah. But for me, I picked an older movie that he's done and it is Pat Verona from 10 Things I Hate About You. When I watch that movie, I think it came out when I was a teenager and it just like that was the swoon worthy movie to watch as a teenager. Okay, yeah, I understand. At first I was like, I know that movie sounds so familiar. Why is that? And then I'm like, oh duh, stupid. You don't remember 10 Things I Hate About You? I just didn't recognize him until I just saw him as the character and I was like, okay now I know who that is. He was the misunderstood bad boy, and, like, back during that time frame, like, all the girls wanted to date a bad boy and change him and make him a better person. That was, like, Pat Verona in this movie, so. They still do. Well, some of us have grown out of that. Some have not. Yeah. And then this is a question you came up with, because I was just getting stumped at this point, and your question was, what is a favorite sports moment that you and I have shared? Despite the fact that this is a book episode, we don't ask questions in the sports episode, so. Yeah, and it it is about us to an extent. I would have to say probably watching Shazi score that header in Anaheim. The Western Conference final in Anaheim? Yeah. Or it wasn't the final, it was game five? No, it was game four. Oh, okay. But yes, yeah, the header. I know it wasn't actually a goal. Okay, Ducks fans, get off your high horse. But Well, like, you say that because while we were there, we saw it happen. You and I knew immediately that's not going to count. You can't head in a puck. Forward motion. You can play it off your head. You just can't 
It's like the like, kicking. There's no forward motion that's right. going to allow a goal. Right. And so you and I were just like laughing and enjoying it because like that's the stupidest thing I've seen a player do in a long time. As were every other Blackhawks fan in the stadium. Right. And the Ducks fans were like, it's not a goal. And it's like, we, we know, know it's not a goal. We know it's not a goal. It, it was just really cool that it happened. It doesn't help that we were surrounded, literally surrounded yeah. by Ducks fans. And you and I were just like laughing and cheering. We had like uh, two bigger dudes behind us that were Blackhawks fans, like two rows behind us. And then like there was some litter in front of us. And like they, they, they were few and far between is the point. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's expensive yeah. to go to a game when you're getting that close. But for me, mine actually has nothing to do with my team, Interesting. which is weird. So my favorite sports moment that you and I have shared is when we were flying back from New Jersey. We had just done a week with your family as a family reunion. It was also a memorial situation for your grandmother who had passed who you got, luckily, the ability to meet where she passed, which was not much time, but you did. And so the reunion was in New Jersey. We were flying home through Chicago. Through Midway, yeah. At Midway Airport, we were eating while a Stanley Cup final game was happening for Chicago. With the Blackhawks, packed in by, like, I wouldn't say hundreds, but, like, dozens of Blackhawks fans. There were dozens of Blackhawks fans. We were sitting there watching the game, and then our delayed plane stopped being delayed, and we had to run on Like, out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I only noticed, because I ran to the bathroom, and on my way back, I looked. I was like, oh, we're boarding right now. Yeah. So we get on the plane, and you're watching the game, I believe, on your phone. Yeah. While we're on the plane, and we're in Chicago. They are not in Chicago, and they won the Stanley Cup. Yeah. While we're on our plane, and everyone starts cheering, and it's so great. Yeah. And, like, how often does something like that happen? Right. And so, I don't know. I really enjoyed that, despite the fact that it's not my team, and it's yours. And that was 2013, right? 2015. That would have been the one we won in Chicago then. And did you win in Chicago? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we were not at the arena. Yeah. <laughs> we, we were on a plane. We were on a plane that had just left. And I think the best part about it was like the stewardess uh, or the steward in this instance, because it was a gentleman, was like, okay, guys, everybody calm down. It's not that important. And everybody was like, shut yes, it up. Is. You don't understand. It's a religion in this city. Like, yeah. you cannot do that. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And the last question I have is, Something I came up with that I think is funny, but it's actually probably not funny. What is the number one thing your FBI agent has probably heard you say the most? Because we always joke that there are FBI agents listening to you 24-7. Well, that or the NSA agent, but yeah. Right. I'm trying to think. For me, it probably would be just me calling the cat's name. Yeah. (laughs) Because... She likes to misbehave. Well, particularly whenever she gets the opportunity to mess with me. But (laughs) if it's not that... It's probably me just shouting at the television while I'm watching sports. Like, just mumbled nonsense of frustration. I would say it's probably between one of those two things. Yeah. I said besides curse words, question mark. Yeah. So, probably that I have a headache or that our cat needs to stop misbehaving in some way. Yes. Because she's a real agent of chaos. She truly is. I don't know where she gets it. It's not from you or me, clearly. It must be from her cat parents. Maybe. Yeah. But that was all the questions. I thought those were a little outside the box for some of the questions we usually ask. Yeah. Probably not the Taylor Swift one, though. Yeah, that was a hard one for me just because I I, I know I listened to, I've listened to a lot of Taylor Swift songs thanks to you. Yeah. But, like, I don't know the names. Like, I, I'm one of those people that if you play a song, 
I probably won't remember the name of who it is. I'll know the artist. Yeah. And I'll know the entire song. Like, I could sing along with it word for word, but, like, for some reason it just never clicks the See, I normally don't have that problem. The one band I would have a problem like that with is obviously Fall Out Boy. Yeah. Because they have ridiculously long titles for stuff. And weird titles for things. Like, Like I know what you did last summer. Like, what? Like, uh, the one about... The lawyer made us change the title of the song or something like that. And yeah. Like, it's this really long title, but I normally don't have that problem. No. Also, it helps that the one that I'm talking about came on her latest album. That does help a little bit. But we're going to get into what I've been reading for the past two weeks-ish because of a regular break and all that stuff. I said, except for one book, I've had a really good time with what I've been reading because... Almost every book I read was four stars or higher. Only one book is lower than a four star. So that's really good. Yeah, for you especially. Are you saying I'm rough on ratings? Not only am I saying it, yes. Yes, you are. The first book I read since we recorded last is Exit Strategy by Martha Wells, a backlist from 2018, and book number four in the Murderbot Diaries. I keep harping about Murderbot every week. It's an adult sci-fi series. I rated it 4.25 stars. And I said I won't keep harping on the series since I read three Murderbot books since we last recorded. It's a sci-fi where the contracted security unit just wants to watch their TV shows. I feel that. Yeah. And then the book that got a lower rating than the others is Max and the Spice Thieves by John Perigine. Perigine. It's a NetGalley arc. Yeah. The book comes out on April 20th. It is book number one in The Secrets of the Twilight Gin. It's a middle grade fantasy, and I rated it 2.25 stars. So I didn't love it, and it's not necessarily the fault of the book for some of it. Some of it, I definitely think there's an issue with authorial voice, where the narration and the way that the author depicts certain characters, they don't fit what they're supposed to be depicting. So this is a book about Max, who must go on an adventure with a pirate captain to try to save his mother. And the problem for me here is that Max doesn't sound like an eight-year-old child. Okay. But also, all the adults in the book don't sound like adults. So it's not that Max was aged up too much to fit everyone else. And it's not that the adults were aged down too much to fit Max. It was all the age ranges here don't sound like what they're supposed to be. The adults sound too young. The children sound too old. And I think a lot of it is narration. A lot of it is the way that the characters are behaving on the page, not just what they're saying. Gotcha. And I think... If you're a kid reading this, you're going to have less of an issue with this because where you're at in life, you're like, yeah, this makes sense that people would behave this way. Right. But as an adult, like, it doesn't really. I think if you're in the age range that the book is meant for, you're probably fine. If you're an adult reading this to your kid, there is also probably things for you to get out of the book, but it's not going to be as good as something in your own age range probably is. But if you're an adult, I really don't recommend picking this up unless you're reading it with a younger reader. Right. That makes sense, though. Yeah. Like, it wasn't meant for adults to read. Well, I think it's definitely got a couple of structural issues with the book that don't have anything to do with age range at all. But part of my problem with it, really the majority of what I think is wrong with it, is age range issues. Yeah. 
And the next book I read was the only full-length novel in the Murderbot series, and it's Network Effect by Martha Wells. It's a backlist from 2020, kind of. It's on the edge there where it could be considered a new release because it came out in May of 2020, but that's practically a year ago, so it's a backlist. Who knows? I don't. I feel like you can't exclude anything from uh, the pandemic year as a backlist. <laughs> right, yeah. That's a good time frame on it, too. Yeah. But it's book number five in the Murderbot Diaries. I rated it four stars. We finally got to see our original humans again, and I really enjoyed it. We also got to see Art, which is a ship. Calling it a ship doesn't feel like enough. Like, it's almost like the Starship Enterprise. Okay. But, like, bigger. But, like, bigger. Yeah. <laughs> got it. But I don't want to go into that too much because I've read so much Murderbot while we were gone. The thing I read between that Murderbot and the last one was an absolutely (laughs) remarkable thing by Hank Green. It's a backlist from 2018 and book number one in the Carl's series. I was wondering why he was going to call it, and then I looked on Goodreads and they called it the Carl's series. Originally, it was actually listed as an absolutely remarkable thing series, and it was way too long, so the publishers changed it to the Carl's. Gotcha. But it's an adult sci-fi novel, and it's a reread for me because you're reading this for the first time. So I had to reread to get into the nitty gritty and discuss it with you later on in this episode. My original rating for this was 4.5 stars. I'm not going to change that rating on Goodreads, but upon reread, I think I would lower it to like 4.25. But this is the third time I've read it. So like some books really, really stand up to reread like the Harry Potter series. Some books don't stand up to rereading it that many times. And I think part of it is the turns in this aren't as good a second time or a third time. But it's a first contact with aliens book and it has a lot more underlying themes and we'll get into that a little bit later. And some interesting like comedy with the characters as well, which I'm enjoying thoroughly. So yeah. And the last thing I read during our break is Fugitive Telemetry by Martha Wells. It's a NetGalley arc for the new release for Murderbot, which is coming out on April 27th. Should definitely pick it up, continue to support Martha Wells, because otherwise we'll run out of Murderbot stories and that's not okay. I would not be happy. It is book number six in the Murderbot Diaries, and I rated it 4.25 stars, which is probably one of the higher rated Murderbots for me that doesn't have... Our original set of humans as the main characters. Yeah. So I think part of that comes from the fact that this is almost a combination of like sci-fi and murder mystery. And it was so good. I was so here for it. It was great. Yeah. The only problem I really had with it was the one that I have with all shorter fiction, which is just give me more. There's not enough of it. Right. But I wrote, if your sole complaint for a book is that there's not enough of it, it's a pretty good book. That's usually true unless it's like this was the end of the series and they didn't give you everything you wanted to close it out. Like at that point, that's bad. Then it's a plot problem, not necessarily not enough problem. Yeah. But that was everything I read from our last recording to now. Yeah. Three Murderbot books is pretty good. Made me very happy. Had a pretty good couple of weeks. Yeah, I would agree. And what I plan on reading next, actually, I've changed up in the past, like, 12 hours because originally I had three adult fantasy novels as my next read. And I was like, I I don't know that that's a good idea. I need something to break up all the fantasy as much as I love fantasy. Well, and this week has been a very busy week for you with arcs as well, so, and receiving them, I should say. Well, yes. 
Another reason that I changed up what I plan on reading next is that I got approved for an arc I didn't think I'd get approved for, which is amazing because I got approved for Sunkissed by Casey West. She is a YA contemporary author that has over the years become an auto-buy author for me. Like, she's coming out with a new book? All right, pre-order. That's all I need to know. Yeah. And so the fact that I got approved for this is amazing to me. Like, I literally knew nothing about it. I just saw it was Casey West and I could request it. And I did. And so I'm putting that in there after I finish a book I technically started on Friday, but like obviously haven't finished because it's long. Yeah. So first I'm going to finish Rule of Wolves by Lee Bardugo. I started that on Friday, like I said. It's a chunky boy. Not going to get it finished too soon. Yeah, it was pretty dense. When you pulled it out, I was like, um... Is That's that a like, weapon. I'm like, is that a combination of books? And you're like, no, this is one book. And I'm like, oh... Yeah, it's a weapon. Yeah. It's actually not too long. It's less than 600 pages, but, like, the way that it's written, it's got a lot of words on each page, so it's actually a lot longer than it feels like it is. It's a new release from the end of March. It is book number two in the Nikolai duology, which is the second book in the third series of the Grishaverse and an adult fantasy novel. It picks up where the last one left off with the big cliffhanger, and we get to see more from our King Soldier Spy trio of perspectives. Sounds good. And I'm about halfway through it right now. I'm really enjoying it. I'm a little concerned because there's only half a book left and a lot of things need to happen. And then after that, I will pick up the Casey West arc that I got from NetGalley called Sunkissed. It will release on May 4th of 2021, which is part of the reason I need to get to it. It is a YA contemporary romance and a summer romance, so it makes sense like it's coming out at the end of spring. Right. A girl named Avery is being forced to spend the summer with her family at a family-based resort with zero Wi-Fi. At first, she hates it, but a cute summer staffer, who is definitely off-limits, turns it around. <laughs> Casey West is an autobi author for me, like I said, so it really didn't matter what the plot is. I'm going to read it. He's off limits. Oh, no. Well, it's a kid is, well, I say a kid. He's hurried, has a summer job at the resort, and she's got her eye on him. Okay. So it should be good. And then I'll pick up Wind Witch by Susan Dennard. This is a backlist from 2017 and book number two in the Witchland series. It's an adult fantasy novel. I'm rereading before the new book comes out this summer. Here we have the main perspectives we're following dealing with the fallout of the previous book. We see Isolt and Aduan teaming up together while Merrick and Safi have to deal with the cards that the last book dealt them. And that's really the only way I can describe it because sequel. And it doesn't sound like a lot of books, but that's about a thousand pages I need to read. And I think at this point we can just go ahead and say it. I'm going to fail at my challenge of only reading two books a week because I have so far. All year Solidly long. failed. Yeah. And I'm accepting defeat so I can continue reading. Go figure. Yeah. As for what you've been reading, you have read the first half-ish of yeah, An Absolutely it, Remarkable Thing by Hank Green. I think it ends up being like 46%. Yeah, but I didn't want you to continue because that's actually a really good stopping point. But at the same time, the next chapter is 60 pages long. So you'd be well over the halfway point if you read that next chapter. What's bad is I probably could have been through the book because I've had almost two weeks to read it. But because we also wanted this to be a 
partial vacation away from the podcast. We love you guys, but I need time away sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You just have a lot more to balance than I do, I think. And so taking the time off of everything to just relax is kind of necessary at some points. Yeah, definitely can agree with that. But I've enjoyed the beginning of this book. Like, it's it's been good so far. I think my only peeve was literally in the first chapter, Hi, my name is April May. What? No. Like, April May is an amazing character. Just, I felt like the creativity was lacking. Is she an amazing character? Well, I definitely don't like her, whether or not she's an amazing character. She's a little self-destructive, to say the least, but overall a good character. But you're not supposed to like April May, so. Well, then I'm a monster. Strike me down. I think your opinion could change based on the back half of the book, maybe. Yeah, but I am kind of a sci-fi fan. I haven't, like, established that yet, but, like, when it comes to shows and TV shows that I used to watch, I really enjoy it. So I've been enjoying the book. Go figure. Yeah. You know, it's it's very much that way. Well, how do you like the format of the book is my question because it is very much a book where the narrator is talking to the audience and I don't think you've had that yet. I think it's harder for me to wrap my mind around certain scenes and I think it makes me forget stuff that's going on. So like there's been a couple times where I've had to go back and like reread something and be like, oh, that's what happened. Got it. Only because like it feels like a lot of the times she's comparing these life moments that you don't see at all and then wrapping it back into what she's talking about. And you're just like, I get it. That's the internal narrative situation that is kind of going on. Do you mean like flashbacks or? Almost. Yeah. They're basically just should go back and start talking about like this experience with Maya or this experience with Annie. And then like, then you're back to reality again. I feel like that's far more common than going as your opening to a book being, look, I'm aware that you're here for an epic tale of intrigue and mystery and adventure and near death and actual death. But in order to get to that, blah, 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 blah. Like that is very directly like breaking the fourth wall. Oh yeah. And, I feel like that is much more uncommon than what you're discussing with like flashbacks and stuff like that. Yeah. And I don't have that much of a problem with that because I've always been a Deadpool comic fan and breaking the fourth wall is a regular thing in Deadpool comics. So I don't have an issue with it so much. It's just, it's different. Yeah. I think that I can't say that out loud to you because you haven't gotten there. This is why it's so hard to discuss books when you're halfway through them. Yeah. So it opens up with April basically saying, I have a story to tell here. And I know that for the people who are in this book, who she's breaking the fourth wall for, they all already know basically what happened, but they don't know the nitty gritty. And here I'm going to get into the nitty gritty of my story and what's happened in my life to get me to the point that you know about. Yeah, you kind of get brought into her life's history and the day-by-day steps of what actually brought us to where we are, story-wise. By the end of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And we meet April May, who is a, I believe, 23-year-old graphic designer at a startup company in New York City. And she discusses how she has a lot of privilege to be able to work in her field in New York City, despite it not being the perfect job that she wants. Yeah. And the fact that she was able to go to an expensive art school because her parents had money. And there's a lot of discussion about, like, privilege and other things on top of the just first contact with alien story that 
we end up having. But she is leaving work at like three in the morning one night and she realizes she needs to go back to her desk to get her Metro card that has money on it. And in doing so, runs into a statue of a giant, what looks like samurai. Robot? Transformer? Yeah. Yeah. And she's sitting there having this moment about how it's really cool and how New York is a place where a lot of really cool art and things happen and people just sort of walk away. Yeah. And so she decides to call her friend Andy, who runs a YouTube and podcast, and is like, come here with your equipment. We're going to do something with this. And Andy either gets nervous or whatever, but he decides she needs to be the one on camera. Yeah. And so she fake interviews this thing and calls it Carl. And the video ends up going viral overnight while she's asleep. It's because this thing has popped up in 64 cities around the world on six of the seven continents. And that it all happened at the same time. All the cameras in the area were knocked out for like five minutes and they don't know what's going on. And all you could hear was Queen. Right. Yeah. Because she was one of the first people to post anything about it, news agencies have used her video. And so suddenly they're going to start putting her on the news and paying her money because they don't want to get sued. Right. And we see how this leads to this sort of instant fame and instant like financial security that comes out of nothing. Absolutely. And so there's this discussion about what happens with your life whenever suddenly you're thrust into the spotlight that you weren't expecting. And you really get a good look into what changes happen in your lifestyles when things like that instantly happen. Like in today's world, a lot of people go viral on the internet and like you and me, we don't understand what What that lifestyle change. Like, Oh yeah. You're seeing kind of the worst. I feel like with April May, like what, The good things that she's experiencing, but the bad things she's pushing off on everybody else. Right. You also see negative sides to this in the book because her life suddenly becomes about, like, maintaining this virality and, like, how to push the numbers to be better. And I feel like YouTubers really, like, connect with her in that because it's all about the numbers and, like, you need to reach more people and do more and... At first, April May is sort of stumbling around through this because she wasn't really a social media person before this happened, and suddenly she's not just on Instagram, she's on Facebook and Twitter, and having to sort of figure out how to be this person. Yeah, to be this image of a person, realistically. Right, because as happens in the book, at the end of a late-night talk show, she and Andy come together to create this sort of persona of April May. And she's just basically thinned down into, like, the basis of a person. Yeah. And someone who doesn't have any sort of contradictions. A normal person can be this, but also this. And April May, as an idea, has to just be one thing. And being distilled down into that sort of makes it harder for her to exist outside of, like, the social media and YouTube and stuff. Right. But at the same time, weird stuff is happening outside of any sort of, like, conversations about privilege or virality or, you know, that sort of thing. It starts with, I believe, Wikipedia edit problems. Yeah. Letters are just going missing with misspelled words. Right. And it's called the Freddie Mercury sequence, I believe. That's what they were calling it, yes. Yeah. 
she starts sort of going down this rabbit hole of these weird things are happening, but I've also got personal problems. I've also got social media problems and YouTuber problems and stuff like that. She's stretched thin. Yeah. But they realize that there is a chance that the Carls are an alien life form, but they don't want to say it because you're crazy if you're saying it's aliens. It's never aliens. Yeah. And they realize with the Freddie Mercury sequence that the Carls are asking for certain elements. Right. And this is where really Miranda comes into play because she's the one that sort of breaks the Freddie Mercury sequence and helps them deliver these things to the Carl on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Is that the one? Yep. In front of the um, Great Chinese Theater or whatever it is. Yeah. And whenever they do that, first they have to deal with her fame before she can ever get to the weirdness of Carl. Yeah. Because she has to do all these photos and signings and... To get to the front of the line. Yeah. But then she delivers those elements to him and his hand pops off and goes running into the magical club that is around the corner. The Magician's Club. I don't think that's the name of it, but yeah. I don't remember what it's called. It's like the Magical Academy or something stupid like that. Magical House of BS or something. Yeah. So they won't let her in because she's not a member. But But they let a walking hand in. (laughs) But they also can't find it. Yeah. And this is sort of the moment that I think everyone realizes just how weird and silly Hank Green as an author is. Because, like, that's just silly. Yeah, literally, like, full-on sprint chasing a robotic hand that has ran away. And, like, I'm imagining, like, a big, giant metal version of Thing from the Addams Family. If it makes you feel any better, that's what I thought, too. Yeah. And I think that's what you're meant to really go to, mind-wise. Like, because that's the way he kind of describes it, so. And you obviously find out that, like, after that happens, that the, is it the, it's the right hand, right? Yes. Have disappeared off of. All of the Carls, just out Not of thin just air. just that one, yeah. Yeah, just but disappeared. They didn't, they didn't run away. But they didn't run off. They that just was the only hand that ran off. Yeah. And that starts to lead into even more weirdness from the Carls because this is probably the thing that precipitates the dream getting out into the world. Yeah. And it starts with April, May, and the people around her. So it's like a contagious dream, Yeah. which is weird. And when she got on the airplane, then everybody on the plane started having the dream. And And that spread. Yeah. Let's not get into how much that resembles other things right now. I think it was meant to, let's be honest. Well, that happened before COVID happened. Years before COVID happened. He's pretty good at writing things that predate things that are going on in the world. So, Yeah. yeah. And basically, April May then goes from being this person who had this job was a regular person, now she's become a YouTube sensation and is going on all these different news outlets to try to push forward her agenda, but also just trying to stay in the limelight Yeah. and keep making all that good YouTube money, apparently. That's not the only money she's making, but at the same time, the dreams are happening. People are finding out that there are puzzles in the dreams and start solving them. Faster than she can. Right. But see, this is where she has a problem because she wants to not just be the first person to deal with whatever this is. She wants to be the one to solve all the things that come out of connecting with this alien race. Which you find out is impossible. Right. Like, you can't be all things and do all things. You have to be able to delegate and allow other people to get in the spotlight sometimes. 
Yeah, and it ends up coming back that, like, there's more or less a Reddit forum going around, and, what, like, one person has solved, like, 12, and that's the most solved by, like, a single person. The proletariat, I believe, is the screen name. Correct. Which, they connect a few of the dots for in that chapter, but... Not like Do you depth. know who the proletariat is? Supposed to be Maya. They haven't announced it, though. Okay. She has her suspicions that she knows who it is. Right, right. Yeah. Do you know about how many puzzles there are and all that? I don't think it covered the exact number where I was at, but I know that there was a lot. Like, they were in the thousands based on what I was hearing. I believe it was 4,096. Okay. Well, then I haven't gotten there yet. Because it creates something. Yeah. When you solve all of them. Yeah. But basically, in the dream, they're calling these sequences because the puzzles get harder and it's like you have to do this to do this to do this to get to the code that you're looking for. Right. Yeah, you really are just right there. I'm on the cusp of enjoyment. But as they're discovering more about the crawls and April is trying to push her agenda, there is also someone on the other side named Peter Petrowicki, or they, as they call him, PP. And he is the person who thinks that the Carls aren't a good thing. And even if we don't know what they are, what they're supposed to be doing, like, it's obviously a sign that we need to worry about our safety and our control. Can we all agree this was, like, the QAnon guy? (laughs) Like, it's just a bunch of nonsense. And he's basing it off of literally no information, just personal opinions. Right. And so... Basically, his perspective is, I don't need to know all the information. All I need to know is that it is a safety problem and worrying about his own safety. And that's really the side that is just about the fear and dealing with all of the problems that sort of stem from the fact that they don't know everything, they aren't in control. Yeah. And so they're basically just constantly fighting on Twitter and being the worst versions of themselves, even if, you know, she's supposed to be like the good side. Yeah, the good side of the force, the bad side of the force is Peter, clearly. But they both just look like trash. Let's just call it what it is. She becomes a professional arguer. She stops getting paid for her presence on, like, CNN and stuff like that, but she still does it. Yeah. Partially because it keeps her in the front of everyone's minds, but partially because, like, she is pushing this brand and this idea of, like, peace and sort of, like, the what they would consider saner side of the argument. And then on top of that, she gets to talk to the president before she actually even gets into, like, the Peter stuff. Yeah. stuff. So I've enjoyed it. I'm excited to see what comes next just because, again, sci-fi nerd, I'm going to love this. So um, I think it's more, though, than a sci-fi novel. And I think it's because you see the behind-the-scenes stuff, not just with, like, YouTube, but she gets an agent and, like, everything about dealing with people who work with famous people and everything to do with like having Robin as her assistant and just the downsides of fame, but then also like the privileges that come with fame and everything to do with that. And like in my original review on Goodreads, which is still there, I said that this is a multi-layered book. You have the sci-fi stuff, the action-y stuff that happens. You also have the personal stuff that happens with, like, April May and her friends and everyone in her life. But you also have, like, the underlying stuff about privilege and recognizing your privilege. And that in multiple ways. Because, like, she acknowledges that she is 
now a financially secure, attractive white woman in America where it's good to be a financially secure, attractive white woman. And so you get into that. Yeah. And you get into the nitty gritty with fame, with YouTube, with Twitter, and all this stuff on social media that, let's face it, we don't know nearly enough about how this really affects us because social media is really so young. Like, obviously, you're thinking, well, I mean, like, YouTube came out in 2007 or whatever, and all these other things came swiftly after that, so it's not that young. But in reality, we don't know how this affects us in the long term, thinking broadly about how dealing with all of these things for such a long time constantly in our face, like, what is that going to do? In, like, the spectrum of... Life? Well, humans. I was going to start with that. Life, yes, is a lot longer. Yeah. Um... But in general, like when it comes to humans on the earth and even, let's be honest, media in its, in its existence, like it's small. It's yeah. still very small. Like media has been around and big for as long as people could write. But and, I mean, I think right now we're just starting to see what some of the effects can be oh yeah. from the social media, from presenting this presence, even though it's not the full picture of who you are as a person. And interacting with other people who you don't get a full picture on either. You're seeing the best of people, and that's the purpose of. But also, we're just now starting to see how that sort of thing and the way that information is communicated, how that changes people. Because, like, we're seeing on Facebook, people who were moderates or slightly right or whatever are starting to lean very far to the right. Yeah. Based on the Let's way information in is being disseminated from Facebook and things like that. And so I think this goes and does a good job questioning, like, who am I as a person versus who I am on social media? And, like, what am I projecting and what am I absorbing when it comes to social media? Right. But, yeah, it's a sci-fi book. With other things that are deep, deep meanings. And I think, really, Hank Green is probably one of the few people who could write such a heavy, like, contemporary perspective inside of a sci-fi novel. Yeah. Because he is a YouTuber, he's on Twitter, he, he understands opens a lot level of, of doors fame. Yeah. when it comes to businesses he runs. And so I think he's one of the few people who could discuss that while also having a science background to discuss the science Parts of the Curls series. Yeah. I think he fits the bill just yep. right. But I will be finishing that book this week. Yes. And we'll be discussing my wrap-up of it next week. I feel like the second half is more action-y, so you'll definitely have more to discuss. Good. But we will catch you next week for the sports episode on Tuesday. And another book episode on Thursday. Of course, got to get that in there. So we'll see you next time, guys. Make sure you check out all the social media, which will be linked in the show notes. Bye. Bye.